Amen. You know, we, we sang, I know this song was new to you, and it's always kind of hard to sing a new song with it. He's got plans for us, but the more we sing it, the more you can really focus on the words themselves, and we know that he has many plans. And we know that he has many tools at his disposal to bring about his plans. And this morning we're going to focus on one thing, and that is his divine discipline. And so this morning I welcome those of you who are watching on the tubes online to our Sunday morning praise and worship service. And the title of my sermon this morning is The Doctrine of Divine Discipline. My text is the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 through 1. Those of you present have the handout. You have the text printed in the New King James for your reference. And of course, you have the sermon outline as well for your easy reference. So follow with me as I always do, looking to God to guide my words. And so, dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you know, I heard about a boy who went off to one of these extremely expensive universities. And the bills were coming in monthly to the parents who were really feeling the pain and they were doing all they could to keep their heads above water. One day, his mother received a letter from him. And it reads like this. Dear Mom, I'm writing to inform you that I have flunked all of my courses. I had an accident and totally wrecked my car. I owe the clothing store in town $2,000, and I have been suspended for the next semester because of misconduct. I'm coming home. Prepare, Dad. Well, the mother wrote back a one-line letter, which she simply said, Dear son, Dad is prepared. Prepare yourself. You know, God is prepared to deal with his children when they sin. God has a woodshed. And if you are one of his children before you get through this life, you will be making several trips to that woodshed. You see, there are three ways God could deal with us when we sin. First of all, God could just condemn us. Even after a person is saved, God has the power to then do what he wants and go ahead and he can send us to, to, to hell if he wants to. But God really won't do that because he's already said in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then again, God could condone our sin. God could just stick his head in the sand and ignore sin and overlook it. But God cannot do that. And he will not do that because he is a holy and a righteous and a just God and he will not allow a sin to go unpunished. But the third way that God could deal with us and the way that he does deal with us is that he corrects us. You see, if God condemned us when we sinned, that would be pure legalism. That is, you sin, straight to hell. If God condoned our sin, that would be liberalism, where God would just simply say, sin is no big deal, and he lets it go. 
But the third way, God's way, is love. The Lord himself said in Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And here in this passage, Hebrews 12.5-11, we have described for us a trip to God's woodshed. And here we find the doctrine of divine discipline. So the first thing you're in your outline to consider is the powerful reasons for discipline. But I want you to understand immediately that the purpose of discipline is not to discourage us, but to encourage us. In fact, the word exhortation in verse 5 literally means encouragement. Now, how could the discipline of God possibly encourage his children? Well, first, consider A. It confirms our identity. The text, verses 6 and 7, states, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Listen, one of the marks that you are a child of God is the discipline of God on your life when you sin. Now God whips his children, but only his children. If your kids are playing in the yard with the neighbor's kids and they begin to misbehave and get into a fight, whose kids do you discipline? Well, you certainly don't discipline the neighbor's kids. At least, if you're smart, you discipline your own. Well, God does not whip the devil's children. He only whips his. And he does whip his because they are his children. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, Well, I'm a Christian. God never whips me. I'm living essentially the the way I like to. I don't believe I've ever been to God's woodshed. How do you explain that? There's a very simple explanation. You're not a Christian. If you have never been to God's woodshed, you are not a child of God. And I can tell you right now with complete confidence, if there is unrevealed, unrecognized, unrepentant sin in your life that has caused you neither grief nor guilt, you are lost and you need to be saved. Our text, verse 8, states, But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. His words, not mine. You know, there are some people who claim to be saved. They think they're saved. But it is obvious that they're not saved, not because they are sinning. Christians sin, but because their sinning does not bother them. The church today has single Christians who are sleeping around and married Christians who are running around. They're wallowing in sin like pigs in slop. You try to talk to some of them. And they just smile and say, well, I'm just backslidden. A lot of these so-called backsliders are going to slide right into hell when they die. There is a thin line between being backslidden and being lost, and that thin line is the discipline of God. If you are truly backslidden, you're miserable, and God will take you to his woodshed and whip you until you slide back into place. 
Second, consider B. It corrects your iniquity. You had better learn this lesson and learn it well. Nobody gets away with sin. Whether it is a saint or a sinner, whether it's a saved person or a lost person, you may get away from your sin, but you'll never get away with your sin. But please understand again that discipline is not a sign that God does not love you. It is a sign that he does. Our text, verse 6, states, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You know, I heard about a family of wayward members of a church who at one time were extremely active in the church, and then they'd fallen away. They lost interest. They were true backsliders. That is, they were saved, but they had just gotten away from the, from the Lord. Well, some deacons t- took it upon themselves, and they talked to the dad, and they talked to the three sons. It was Jim, John, and Sam. And they talked to them about their situation, but they had no success. And then the pastor went to meet with them, to talk to them, but they didn't listen to him either. Some of the other brethren went and they visited them and tried to get them to go back to the church, but they were rejected. One day, when all of the boys were out in the pasture, a large rattlesnake bit John. He became very sick. They called the doctor, and after examination, he said to the family, there's not much I can do. About all you can do now is just pray. The doctor left. Well, this father immediately called for the pastor and asked him to come. He came, and then he told them of John's condition. He said, Pastor, would you please pray for my boy that he would be healed? Well, I want you to listen to the prayer that this pastor recited. O wise and righteous father, We thank thee that in thy wisdom thou hast sent this rattlesnake to bite John in order to bring him to a census. He has not been inside the church house for years, and it is doubtful that in all of this time he's ever even felt the need of prayer. Now we trust that this will be a valuable lesson to him and that it will lead him to genuine repentance. So now, O Father, wilt thou send another snake to bite Sam? and another one to bite Jim, and a big one to bite the old man. We've done everything we know we know for years to restore them, but to no avail. It seems that all of our combined effort could not do what this one snake has done. Thus, we conclude that the only thing left that will do this family any good is more rattlesnakes. So, Lord, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes, we pray. Amen? Of course, the story is humorous, but it does illustrate a point. God will use anything from snakes to scorpions to to discipline his children and to bring them back to a place of repentance, holiness, and love. Second in your outline, consider the personal root of discipline for you Ivy Leaguers' route of discipline. Now, I have shown why God disciplines us, but how does God discipline us? We are told very plainly here that there are three ways that God can discipline his children, and each one is more severe than the last. First, consider A, internal conviction. 
the first thing God does is rebuke us. Our text, verse 5, states, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. When the Lord rebukes us, he convicts us through the Holy Spirit that we are out of fellowship with him. If you are truly saved, then you have had the experience of having done something wrong or you said something wrong and immediately you felt that little twinge of guilt. You felt that little prick of consciousness. Immediately you knew that you had done something wrong that you should not have done. And that God was not pleased. Well, that is internal conviction. See, God has a way of speaking to us in that still, small voice in the inner recesses of your heart to let us know that we have fallen out of fellowship with him and sinned against him. And I believe that is the way that God prefers to discipline his children. As a matter of fact, you parents, I believe, prefer to discipline your children in that fashion. You would rather use a word rather than a whip. Isn't it great? If you could speak to a child and see that child straighten up and know that that child has been properly disciplined. But as you well know, the problem is so many times children won't listen. They don't hear you. You tell them not to do something, and then somehow they will make up their minds and they'll do it just the same. They just won't listen. That's when you have to take the next step. Second, in your outline, consider external affliction. After the rebuke of the Lord, there is the chastening of the Lord. Verse 6a, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now the word chasten here means to discipline. It refers to training a child. Now this is when God spanks. First God speaks, then God spanks. Now, all, now, God has all kinds of ways that he can spank us when we sin. For example, he can refuse to listen to our prayers. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Or God could also use the assurance of his presence by removing his presence from us. Evidently, that is what happened to David, for when he finally came to God and confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he said to God in Psalm 51, 11a, do not cast me away from your presence. Another way that God can punish us is by taking away our power. Again, David said to the Lord in Psalm 51, 11b, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Sometimes, God takes away our privileges. God can spank us through sickness, causing us to lose our job, bringing trouble into our businesses by allowing discord in our families. Do you know that what a lot of people call bad luck is really good discipline? But that's not to say that every time something goes wrong in your life, God is disciplining you or trying to punish you. On the other hand, Keep in mind that when you are punished, when you are spanked, you feel it and you know it. I never received a whipping from my dad that somebody had to tell me I was getting one. The same thing is true about God. 
Third, consider the eternal affliction. Listen, some of the some things in this section may be hard to swallow. Now, after the speaking and the spanking comes the scourging. Verse 6b says, and scourges every son whom he receives. And the word scourge literally means to flog with a whip. He refers to a severe and painful beating, harsh consequences, serious sickness. Let's jump to the most serious type of discipline that God inflicts. There sometimes may come a point when God decides that his discipline is of no effect and the only step is death. Do you know that you can rebel against God to the point that death is the only remedy? And that is why our text, verse 9, states, Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5.16 that there is sin unto death. Then there were people in the church of Corinth who were dying right and left because they were abusing and misusing the Lord's Supper. There's a pastor, Homer Lindsay Jr., in a Baptist church down in Jacksonville, Florida, who said this, Some church members must be lost because if they were saved, God would kill them the way they're living. Our God is a jealous God, and he's jealous over his children. God will kill you before he lets the devil have you. There was a man in the church of Corinth who was living in an adulterous and sensuous relationship with his stepmother. The church had done nothing about it. Paul said to that church in 1 Corinthians 5.5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, God's going to let Satan kill him so that he might go ahead and take him to heaven. And listen, sowing discord in the body may also be such a sin. I just wanted to say it again as plainly as I know how. If you are a child of God, you cannot sin without experiencing the rod of his discipline. Third in your outline, consider the proper responses to discipline. Now I say again, no Christian is going to escape God's woodshed because nobody is perfect. As God's children, you cannot escape discipline. Verse 7 tells us that as children of God, we are to endure chastening. So the question now that we should ask is how will you respond to God's discipline? First, consider A, you can resent it. Verse 5 states, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Now, the word despise means to treat lightly or to disparage. You see, you can get bitter when God disciplines you. You can get mad when he takes you to the woodshed. I heard about a little girl who was disobedient to her mother, and as a punishment, her mother locked her in the closet. Well, it got very quiet. And so the mother went 
to check on that little girl. She opened up the door and she said, what are you doing? And the little girl said, well, I spit on your shoes, I spit on your coat, and I spit on your dress. And now I'm just waiting on more spit. Well, when God disciplines us, you can gripe about it, complain about it, but I want to tell you that resenting it is not going to remove it. Second, you can consider B, you can reject it. Our text, verse 5b, states, Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Discouraged. That is, you can quit. You can give up. When God disciplines you and life gets a little touch, some just totally desert God's army and drop out of God's school. You can say or act out, Well, God, if this is the way you're going to treat me, I'm just not going to serve you anymore. But I want to remind you, if the Lord is your shepherd, then you are the Lord's sheep. And he has a perfect right to share you whatever he wants wool. And you have no right to bleat. Bleeding is the wavering cry made by sheep. Third, consider C. You can receive it. The word endure in verse 7 means to accept or to receive. You see, when trouble comes into your life, you need to ask the question, why is this happening to me? Or Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Because please know that the purpose of discipline is to train us or to teach us. In verse 11, we are told to be, that we are to be trained by the chastening of God. And the word train here in the Greek is where we get our English word gymnasium. Gymnasium is a place of training. Listen, the discipline of God is not, going to, is not intended to make you mad or sad. It's really to make you glad. Consider Job 5.17 that reminds us, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. You know, and we all know, that discipline may be a bitter pill to swallow. Because verse 11 tells us, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. But you know, like bitter medicine, it will be good for you in the end. Lastly, in your outline, consider the positive results of discipline. The wonderful thing is what happens to you when God does discipline you. Because the result, if you will allow it, is always positive. First, consider a peace. Verse 11 states, Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The first result of God's discipline is peace. The most miserable man in the world is not the man who is lost and does not know God. The most miserable man in the world is the man who is saved and knows God and is out of fellowship with him. Now, hopefully you'll remember that the first three of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And I don't believe that it's a coincidence that they're in that order. For when your love for God cools and you backslide and you fall into sin, the first thing that goes is your joy. And when joy walks out the door, peace flies out the window. Second, consider B, productivity. Discipline allows us once again 
Verse 11, to bear the fruit of righteousness. Have you thought about the fact that God is pruning you? That we might become more productive? And he does it for two reasons. One, to stop you from doing the things you should not do. And secondly, to get you to start doing the things that you should do. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. He went on to say in verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. In other words, God's word. And third, consider purity. God disciplines us, as we are told in verse 10, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Listen, God is not primarily interested in your health. He's not overly concerned with your health, with your happiness. He is preoccupied with your holiness. You see, if you can be healthy, healthy and happy without being holy, you are not saved. It is when you are saved that being holy is the only thing that will get you to a state of happiness and health. Listen, Jesus did not die to save us from hell. Jesus died to save us from sin. And we are told in Titus 2.14 that Jesus is the one who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I heard about a little boy who was floating his boat out in the pond and it just kind of like floated away. And a man came by and he saw that the boat was out of the pond and he began throwing stones on the far side of the boat. The boy asked him, what are you doing? The man said nothing, but just kept throwing those stones on the far side of the boat. Then something very interesting happened. As the stones hit the water beyond the boat, they created ripples, which caused the boat to be pushed back toward the boy. Even though the stones disturbed the smooth water, they achieved the desired result. And that is exactly the way God disciplines operates. When we drift away from him on the sea of sin or the pond of unrighteousness, he throws out the disturbing stones of his loving discipline, sending out ripples that is going to push us back to where we ought to be. We are to be holy because he is holy. And when we're not, he will discipline us until we are. Amen? Amen? Well, service is over. I think we should go from here and seek the straight and narrow path so we can avoid and be spared God's discipline. I'll see you all then. Amen?